Okay, so I'm joined here by uh, with Jeff from Oakbound Studios. Jeff, how are you going, mate? Uh, yeah, good, thank you. Thank you again for coming on to the Crown Command. And um, I, I sort of found out about you through your, your YouTube channel. I think it just popped up on my feed one day or through the Facebook or something like that. And, and it, it sort of mentioned Old Hammer. I thought, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to have a look at that because I've been searching and scouring the internet for anything related to Old Hammer anything back to those glory days of 80s and 90s. And um, I was very pleased to find your channel and you had a lot of content related to bring out your lead or just your personal projects and that kind of thing during, during COVID. So thanks again for coming on and um, please tell us about yourself and how you got into the hobby, mate. Yeah, this has an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, I guess the the old hammer thing was is very much an online phenomenon. It's people finding each other and hooking up. Um, so I first time round got into the hobby in I think 1991 um my parents bought me a copy of the hero quest which would have been the second iteration of hero quest back then and that just sent me on the the slippery slope of collecting miniatures and painting miniatures uh for it and then um got into uh warhammer fantasy around the time that sec um not second fourth edition was out um but uh we didn't my mates and i lived in a little village um quite a long way away from any sort of official games workshop we had a a toy shop in a, a um a village about 20 minutes drive away um that was our closest source of any kind of gaming material or materials or paints or anything like that so we were making do with very much what what was around us um and one of my friends had inherited a third edition rule book from one of his friends so although it was it was the time that fourth edition was out we were mainly playing a very very simplified version of the third edition um rules with whatever mix of figures we could get so uh, i had a, a principally an undead army i think based made out of the plastics from hero quest and um revenge of the witch lord and um mixed in with a few boxes of the skeleton warriors but then i had um, Dark Elf allies and Chaos Dwarf allies and Chaos um, Warrior allies and all kinds of things just to make it up to a, a reasonable sized force. So that that sort of element of um, mixing and matching different creature types, different races, different armies together has always been part of my kind of gaming DNA. I don't like too too prescriptive uh, an army list. It's, it's all about the sort of the flavor and the character of the army to me and the, the figures that you put into it um, reflect that regardless of whether a, a list says that it's legal or not, you find a way to play it and you, you play around the story that you've built around your army. Um, but I really, I, I sort of fell out of, um, fell out of the gaming scene. Uh, when would it have been about about 2001, 2002, I think, something like that. Um, Mordheim was just coming in. And I remember Mordheim being the last sort of Games Workshop thing that I was really quite excited about. Um, and then, uh, you know, hit mid-teenage years and decided that I'd grown out of all of that playing with toy soldiers. Um, and it took me another uh, decade or so to get back into playing with toy soldiers. So I moved up to Bristol after university. Um, I had some friends who were uh, uh, were still going with it and started sort of rebuilding my collection from there, really. Um, and that's that's when I discovered the old hammer scene. 
Um, and at that time, everything was very much blog based. So there were sort of a dozen um, people who were blogging about projects with figures from the 80s, figures from the 90s, um, playing the scenarios from first, second, third edition um, and putting it up on their blogs. And then the Old Hammer Forum got going, which was kind of a collection of those bloggers uh, posting to their blogs, but also you know, developing feeds, charting the progress of their armies and their the various things they were working on. Um, and then that expanded to uh, bring out your lead being a thing. I think it's, are we approaching? I'm not sure if we're approaching the 10th anniversary. I can't remember quite when it started, but it's been been going quite a while now, just as a, as a gathering of old hammerers coming together to play vintage iterations of Games Workshop games. Um, and then everything kind of moved to Facebook. Facebook sort of took everything over. Um, and so the the blogs and the forums are still going, but they're a bit they're a bit depleted. And as you say, it's quite it Facebook's it's all right. You can find old hammer content on Facebook, but it's got a bit diluted. Uh, I think speaking as a bit of a purist, it's it's become a bit oh this is a no longer Games Workshop officially supported product, therefore it's old hammer. It's been discontinued. Um, so that kind of line of Old Hammer being sort of up to about 95 and then uh, Middle Hammer coming in and covering 4th and 5th edition, um, that's all got, got a little bit blurred. Um, but the forum's still going, still going through, and I know there are a few people who are, are quite dedicated at bringing the Facebook group back to, to old miniatures. Um, but the availability of those miniatures has, has got a bit weird now because when I started collecting again there wasn't really much of a scene there, there was a handful of people who were picking up collections of miniatures on eBay um, and the prices were fairly reasonable whereas it now seems that it, it's become more of a, a dedicated collector's market and the prices of things have gone through the roof so it's much harder now to get a an official games workshop citadel old hammer army um, so the, the move I think now is very much pushing towards um, ranges that are still in production from other manufacturers. So alternative armies are still going. Uh, Ralph Partha Legacy has just uh, started up with some of the old Ralph Partha figures. Uh, Ralph Partha Europe is still uh, going, still stocking some of those ranges. Black Tree Design has the Harlequin ranges. Brigade Games has the Keltos range. Forlorn Hope has the Grenadier Fantasy Lords range. So there's a there's a whole host of um, lesser known companies that are still going, still producing the same figures and the prices are much uh, lower, which was behind the, the series that I did earlier in the year on you know, looking at uh, contemporary new companies and also old companies who are still going, um, whose figures can be picked up at a fraction of the price of what you pay on, on eBay for a, for a Citadel miniature. Um, and I don't, I don't think in many cases the quality is particularly lower. I'm a big fan especially of the Grenadier um, line, the, the um, uh, Copperfield Barbarians and Dark Elves and um, the Nick Lundorks that they've got. I think they're, they're every bit on a par quality-wise with what Games Workshop was putting out at the same period. Um, and you can pick them up for under £2 a model, which you, know, <laughs> you can't sit at all now. Um, yeah, for sure. Mate. So that was that was kind of how I got into the 
got into the scene was just looking for people who were playing with the same toys that I was playing with um, back in the early 90s. In fact, I'm probably I'm a little bit late age wise to the scene because um, uh, we were playing with third edition, but it was well into the existence of fourth edition and the miniatures that were in a, a regular games workshop were the fourth edition miniatures that most people would now badge as middle hammer miniatures. Mm -hmm. So although I, I used to like looking through the mail order catalogues um, and the uh, the pages of the third edition rule book and looking at the the older figures. Uh, and I think particularly because they had a, a more of a muted um, painting style to them, other than the very bright um, primary colours of, of fourth and fifth edition. I think that was part of what attracted me to the older figures. Um, but also that um, I've only sort of recently realised talking to um, people like Tony Ackland and um, Brian Ansell, who were around the scene at the time, that the the style of figure design did have a very marked shift between the the third and fourth edition um periods when when brian left the company um because the earlier the earlier iterations of system miniatures certainly the pre-slotter miniatures um they were very concerned with trying to break this very static line that you get when you've got a two-part mold that you're trying to cast a metal figure from um they were trying to kind of go for dy dynamic diagonals and poses that that gave a sense of um, of movement to the figure rather than the kind of flat I'm holding things like this pose that that then I think when Brian left the company they sort of migrated a bit back into that and some of the middle hammer figures I, particularly um, I'm thinking of like the Gary Morley zombies you know they're all they're all this and it's very it's very flat and um, yeah. So I think I think that sort of also changed the the visuals quite a lot and, and um, led me to kind of prefer the the earlier stuff. Although now, um, of course, I have a fondness for those things because they were the things that were actually around um, when I was collecting. So they were the figures that I was picking up just because that was what was for sale. Um, I wish I'd taken more advantage of mail order, but if I had taken advantage of mail order, I would have. Uh, given all of that stuff away like I did with the rest of my collection in the early thousands in any case so I wouldn't have it now anyway <laughs> talk about having no regrets my my one regret was being very generous and giving all of my miniatures away to a friend of uh, a friend of a friend who was just getting into the hobby and then having to rebuy everything at inflated prices afterwards but never mind <laughs> well, you, you did a wonderful service there mate to somebody there Ho hopefully they're still in the hobby who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Unfortunately, lost contact. I would have liked to have um, got in touch and say, so those things that I gave, <laughs> you still want them? Because if you don't, I'll have them back. But yeah, you know. they're, in, they're in his attic or something now. Yeah, sure absolutely. Yeah. Mouldering away somewhere. Yeah. You'll yeah. dig them out in about 20 years' time. You go, oh, yeah, that's why I remember these things now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to be reminded of the paint jobs on them, though. That was. Uh, because again, the, one of the problems of not having a hobby shop nearby was not being able to get access to the paint supplies. Like now we can get online and order stuff and there's hundreds of companies making lots of different paints and specialist products for the hobby scene. And we didn't have any of that. <laughs> so my my source of paints was the, uh, the local surplus stores in the village that had a supply of uh, car body paints and second uh, you know, end of line Humbrol enamels and 
and that's what I was using. And uh, my ability with enamels was was not as good as uh, someone like you know Fraser Gray, who was painting incredible things with enamels, and John Blanche yeah. doing incredible things with enamels. But they they were artists and they knew what they were doing. And I was a uh, you know eight year old boy who had no idea what he was doing <laughs> other than giving a car body filler. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's lovely, isn't it? So yeah, it's good memories, well, isn't it? Choice. <laughs> yeah, that's true, you know. And I think um, the more you talk about people with, about that from that era, you know, when we got into the hobby, um, and it might be maybe the same case for you, but for me, it was like a very isolated experience where it was only myself. I had absolutely no idea how to paint miniatures, how to undercoat them, nothing. I didn't know how you had to prime them or anything like that, and. Um, it was only the uh, the hero quest, you know. Send away, you know. You'll get it. You'll get like a painting catalog and and uh, sorry, a painting guide and a catalog, and that was kind of like the first starting point, you know. Mike McVeigh's, you know, step by steps. Yeah, yeah, and that and I got into in '95. I started collecting White Dwarf, and that was that was absolutely a game changer because suddenly you've got access to articles on making scenery and making, uh, you know, painting things that you haven't got an internet. You can't go to Google and Google how to do all of these things. And the only examples that you've got are those that are in the magazine. So you can look at the photos and you can read the articles and sort of try and work out how they did it and then find your, your Blue Peter stash of scrap materials and try and make do what you can with those. Yeah. It's, yeah, very, very different world. The more you kind of come to think about it, you yeah, absolutely. Don't have access to a lot of a lot of resources, but I think that encouraged um, the the kind of free fall creativity as well. I think if you certainly looking at um, the the scenery projects of people who got into gaming in those very early stages and everything is made out of yogurt cartons and loo rolls and Pringles tubes and that kind of thing. It has, it has that very kind of creative edge and it may not be as naturalistic, as realistic as someone who's been and bought tabletop world resin and painted it impeccably with an airbrush. And, but it, it has that kind of degree of imagination that I think is quite, is quite hard to, to match when you have, um, very bespoke kits at your at your disposal all the time um i don't know if it's i don't know if it's related to um sort of development in culture but i, I work in a university with um product design and um, architecture students and maybe i'm just rose tinting how kind of problem solving and creative i was as as somebody that age but just that ability to look at something and imagine it being something else and work your way towards that seems to be something that's a bit lacking in the students that I see coming through our through our body they don't they don't sort of have that here's where I am here's where I need to get to let's put the steps together um process which I, I definitely think that wargaming and model making and you know playing with lego at an early age taught me to to you to go through that process i think it was a it was a very good learning experience in terms of creative problem solving and um 
trying to trying to make something good out of what you've got to hand. Hmm. And it's noticeable in the in the White Dwarf um, pages as well. You can you can see the point from which um, Games Workshop moved from encouraging people to make their own terrain and their own uh, gaming boards to when they started selling their own mats and modular boards and plastic terrain kits everything sort of suddenly becomes very formulaic because all of your battlefields look the same um we went up to warhammer world in july uh, of this year when um bring out your level was, was postponed so some of us did a did a bit of a bootleg boil tour of the of the north midlands um and we we stopped in on Warhammer World, and my my sort of expectation from seeing pictures of Warhammer World previously was these great landscapes, tables, everything's intricately made, um, really beautiful tables. And we went in, and everything, every table was exactly the same. It was a neoprene play mat with the same set of plastic terrain painted to a moderate standard on each. And I don't know if that's just because COVID restrictions, they need to be able to wipe everything down after people have left, uh, or whether that just sort of reflects the, um, the uniformity of the way that things are, have been going in the mainstream gaming scene, that everyone's, everyone's table now looks pretty much the same. Mm. You don't see those, those unique constructions. But I think that's also fueled quite a big kickback. You, know, you look at all of the stuff that um, uh, the Ink 28 scene and the, the Turnip 28 scene that's, that's growing up, which is more about sort of personal expression and taking those plastic kits and making them completely unique and kit bashing, if you like, but also adding lots of different things together, which is a, a, a way of sort of saying, OK, we've got we've got this good high level starting point now but let's not just build that kit as it is let's play with it and do something fun with it uh, which I, yeah, I think that's a good thing i think there's something very uh old hammer spirited about those those movements that that don't just sort of follow a list from a book with a kit that you bought off the shelf following the paint scheme that's on the box art it's all about you're putting your own sort of personal take and your own personal expression and your own story into the into the hobby. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Even though I must say, I'm of the opposite mind. All right, <laughs> I like okay. I like everything. Yeah, I've come in. I've come in from the fourth edition. I have, I went in from third edition, but then I really got into to the, the to the hobby in fourth edition, and I loved yeah. having everything sort of spoon fed to me. Like you know, these are the models. This is the game. These are the color schemes. These are the armies, and you know, terrain building was a, a lovely aspect to that because um, I think Adrian Wilde was like the the man back then in the studio, and he did some wonderful terrain. I think it's the, the best terrain ever made in the studio. Um, I think you know he and who was it? Dave Andrews. Dave and Andrews. Yeah. Phil. Who of course designed the the plastic kits when they started doing the the oh, right. plastic terrain kits? Dave Andrews was was big in the design of those. Um, so his his style very much shaped the look of the Warhammer world at that time, I think. Yeah, and it's a lovely style. I like it a lot. It's, it's really great. Yeah, but they also they used they used to have. Um, uh, templates for things like 
you know, bunkers and townhouses and things like that in, in White Dwarf. So if you wanted to replicate those things that you saw in the photos as they were, quite often there would be a template for doing that or they'd, they'd walk you through how to do it. So you could do that. Mm -hmm. So how was the experience at uh, Bring Out Your Lead this year, mate? Uh, it was it was a bit of a strange one. Um, uh, there there were much fewer people around than usual, um, but that's as a bit of an introvert. That's not necessarily a bad thing. As long as I get to meet friends from the scene and play some games, I don't I don't mind how many people there are there. It means I get to talk to more people if there are fewer people there. Um, but it was also it's usually in July um, and it had moved to October uh, and the weather in October and in July in the UK is not typically the same. Um, so whilst in July it's fine to have everything sort of outdoors in a big marquee, um, uh, when you're doing that in October it's, it's pretty cold. Um, <laughs> And I, I went up with a bit of a cold and came back with a far worse cold from sitting in the sitting in the stone carriage court with all the doors open all weekend. And it was it was fun. Um, I think partly uh, my enjoyment of it was was partly tarnished by having a, a cold and partly tarnished by um, uh, just I don't know being a bit a bit wary, a bit cautious about. Covid still being around and lots of people that I didn't know their, you know, how seriously they were taking it, what precautions they were taking, and I think I think I would be absolutely fine if we weren't sort of trying to take care of my ninety-three-year-old father-in-law, um, and being concerned for his health. I would um, I would probably be a lot less concerned for my health, but long Covid is a thing, and I don't want that. So. I know there are a couple of people in the gaming community who've um, who've got it or had it, and um, uh, some of them are actually doing regular sort of updates on living with long COVID, which is uh, a, has been a very interesting um, thing to look at, and it's been affecting them really badly. So definitely not something to just sort of blow off as as not important. Um, but I was I was masked up for the for the experience and came away. Although if I had a cold, I came away without COVID, so that was good. Um, it was nice to hook up with people that I hadn't seen for oh, what eighteen months, two years almost. Um, so that was nice and yeah. play some games in person with people. We've been trying to do some um, uh, online role play things during lockdown but it didn't it didn't really work particularly well it's better better to do those things face to face i think yeah yeah i was very impressed with your hero quest board that you showed in i think the latest uh video you had on youtube about the bring out your lead event and is that a 3d printed board no it's a laser cut board um so it's just um I, I actually did the file for it uh, seven or eight years ago, something like that. Um, and it's it's just the uh, a high res scan of the original board, 
um, changed into black and white, played around with, a, with the contrast a little bit. I added uh, another row of squares around the outside, so you've got a thicker, um, a thicker corridor for bigger fights around the outside. Um, and then that was engraved onto some sheets of MDF uh, with a laser cutter. Mm. Um, and actually it was quite it was quite quick to paint up. I did one, well, when I did first did the file about seven years ago. Um, but I did one because I wanted a board to match the advanced hero quest tiles. Um, and I'm not quite sure why, because I don't I don't really like the advanced hero quest tiles as much. They're a bit um they look like they've been a bit kind of colored in with crayons rather than the the very painted look of the of the original board which I've, i i really like that kind of um like oil paint fairly naturalistic looking um artwork is i'm a big fan of so um uh, so i decided to do another version of it with um painted to, to kind of match the original board but actually just blocked it in and dry brushed it and washed it with acrylics and it came up it came up quite nicely it looked really good mate. yeah 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 and then of course i had to make a big decorative surround to go around it that had all of the um creature stats and spaces for the uh cards and things to go in it just oh, to make nice. it a bit more of a display piece yeah i i'm I do have a big big soft spot for hero quest yeah it's the thing that got me into the hobby it's it's not the greatest game system ever designed no matter what people will tell you um that's nostalgia talking um but what i what i do like about it is the simplicity of it that you've got very few rules people can pick it up in five minutes because it's very very straightforward but because it's so uh simple if you're prepared to be a bit creative with writing new rules for it and developing it you can take it in any direction that your game group wants to go uh, so a few years back i did quite a long campaign with some friends working through all of the um, quest books and we put in a big uh, experience point system and new equipment tables and skills lists um, and we put in uh, spirit points so that if people um, uh started uh, acting in a way that was anything other than lawful good they started to lose spirit points um because i was playing with a group of people who are very much into backstabbing each other and um uh stealing the treasure for themselves so it was a it was a way of kind of dividing the group into factions and then giving them different capabilities reflecting those so you can you can take it off in quite, in quite crazy directions because the core basics are so simple there's not there's not a lot to go wrong with it which is one of the things that i really like i'm not a fan of those um uh very prescriptive games we played uh descent yeah, the the app-based dungeon crawling game um a few years back and i just because it, everything's what you what you've got cards to do and what you've got abilities to do that it sort of removes that kind of personal oh, i want to do this um everything's very very prescribed and very rigid and no, that's if you're going to play a semi-role-playing game i like to play up the role play elements rather than um just make it a board game with that as the theme so mm -hmm. i get on with that so well
but I think you can do that with HeroQuest. I think if, if you if you have a creative um, GM, and maybe that's maybe that's the big thing that if you're playing with an app, you don't have that ability to respond to what the players want to do. You have to be fairly prescriptive because everything needs to have a an algorithm behind it. What about HeroQuest? Because it was the it was the catalyst for me getting into the whole miniature painting and wargaming hobby later on, but. What did you think of Hasbro's latest Kickstarter? Uh, the, um, I, I haven't seen I haven't seen much of the figures appear um, because I think it's only just shipped, hasn't it? So um, I've seen a, a couple of people post pictures of it. I was not a fan of the artwork that they chose. Um, I can see why they've done it because it's obviously styles of of artwork have moved on in the game sphere um but i just think replacing some beautiful les edwards painted artwork with some really fairly crude digital artwork is is a terrible sacrilege um especially when they've preserved the look of the cards and the board fairly faithfully i i don't really that kind of jars to me um from what i've seen of the miniatures they're pretty underwhelming um they're kind of flexible plastic not much detail but who knows we might see when people start painting them but actually there's quite a lot of detail there that's not showing up in the um in the photographs my my main beef with them i think is that the the hero quest plastics uh, as i understand them Yes, they were early plastics. Yes, they were fairly rudimentary in their plastic technology. But as a new painter, um, painting with the style of painting that was was prominent during the late 80s and 90s, where you're you're painting a base color, then you're washing it, then you're highlighting it. They work really well because they've got very pronounced details and not too much sort of fiddly um baggage and things they're, they're, they're all of them are sort of three or four colors will get you a figure painted um and i think as as figures designed to get somebody into the figure painting hobby they're actually very well thought out um and fairly dynamic for the the poses that were possible at the time uh, and that's my big disappointment with the hasbro figures now is that i feel like they look less dynamic than the the very limited plastic technologies of the of the late 80s mm. um so yeah i'm not i'm not sure what who they've got to do their their figure designs but I, yeah a bit a bit underwhelmed but then it's quite easy to get hold of um good figures there are plenty of places who are selling good figures in whatever style you want to i don't feel like replacing those would be a big deal mm. um I, the, the intention with Hero Quest when it first came out was that people would supplement that with buying Citadel miniatures. So there, there's a well-established tradition of replacing your miniatures with uh, with other ones. But yeah, I think I think if I, it's difficult, isn't it? Because the the price of an original Hero Quest has gone through the roof. I remember the times when I was picking up. Um, copies of hero quest for 99p from a jumble sale because it was just it was everywhere and it had fallen out of favor so i had three or four boxes at one point that again i stupidly gave away and then when i wanted to play it again the i think 
I, I looked for ages for a copy that was under 50 quid and was was really struggling. And I think I paid 45 in the end for my copy, which for the amount of play that it's got compared to other games I bought was actually a fairly good deal. Hmm. Um, but that that seemed ridiculously expensive for what it was at the time. Now you're looking, what, 80, 90, 100 pounds for a set in reasonably good condition. It's just insane. And it's not it's not worth that. So if I didn't have if I didn't have a vintage copy, I think I would probably be looking at picking up the new one just to get the board and the cards and the bits and to be able to play it. But I also think with with resources like Yoldi in, you can mm. get all of that stuff. There's some people doing some beautiful things with um, printed and bound rule books and printed cards and custom cards. And I think you could probably do most of that set by yourself fairly easily for the same if not less than the price of buying a Hasbro one so yes it'd be more effort I guess that's the that's the bottom line isn't it you can you can buy this thing in a box and it's good to go or you can spend a few months making your own if you've got the tools and the resources and the and the desire to do so but that's the that's the joy of the hobby isn't it both things exist you can you can do either. I do remember the the, uh, the gentleman Boris, I think he goes by online, that uh, designed yeah. an entire set of, and you painted them because I saw your I have them. Yeah, yeah, yeah I have your them. photograph. But, but again, that yeah. that was a horrifically expensive set of figures. Yeah, like, I didn't buy them. That's why. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna. Expensive. But I, yeah. I hummed and hard for such a long time, and I thought, do you know what? I'm gonna really regret it if I don't because I love it so much. But yeah. But yeah, they they were frighteningly expensive, and I don't know quite what went wrong with that because they uh, there was a, a sort of second set that was uh, an additional Chaos Warrior, and it had a Famir in it, and um, that sort of I disappeared. And I think maybe a few people got copies, but I'm not even, I'm not sure if it got legally shut down or something before it no. uh, before it came to fruition. But yes, they're 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 beautiful. Um, I have yet to use them in a game because I built a diorama out of them. But um, uh, but you can get very similar figures uh, to 3D print now. Obviously, they're not handmade, so by my book, that makes them not as beautiful as <laughs> as the handmade ones. But um, you know, 3D printing is is the new thing that's going to sink small miniatures businesses. So. You can buy yourself a, a set from, or not even buy them. I think you just download them for free from Thingiverse or similar um, and print them out. And you can have your own set of box art hero quest figures. Um, and I think a lot of people will probably go that way. That does seem to be the, the technology of choice for a lot of gamers these days. Yeah, if you can afford it. I mean, I, I, don't, I haven't got a 3D printer. Yeah. I would like it for just certain bits of terrain elements that I would like, like, you know, I was thinking about 40K second edition, I was making some orc buildings. Well, yeah. having the, like, you know, like um, oil barrels and um, jerry cans and tires and that kind of stuff to make scatter terrain, yeah. that'd be perfect for that. Yeah, I don't ever see myself printing out an entire fantasy army with them because I, I much prefer the old original ones and lead and, and that won't, you know, sufficiently... Uh, yeah, adequate my you know if you if you care about them being in lead which 
know, I do, because I like to feel some weight to what I'm picking up and moving around on the tabletop. But um, the the thing that a lot of people are worried about with the 3D printing technology, because I mean, the price of printers is still high, but it's coming down all the time. So they're going to be domestic technology before too much longer. Um, is this uh, scanning thing that I've seen some people do it already, where they've scanned classic Citadel miniatures and then put the SDL files up for people to print. Well, technically that is IP theft um, and the old hammer community comes down very hard on recasters, but it's a slightly different technology as well, isn't it? And, and how do you police that? You can mm. police to a degree recasting because not everybody has a vulcanizer press and a spin caster uh, in their shed. Um, yeah. So you can identify the people who are uh, producing vast quantities of uh, semi-rare miniatures um, and selling them over and over and over again and go, oh, do you know what? I smell a bit of a rat here. Um, whereas, you know, if you're if you're just sort of facelessly putting scans of something onto an online platform for people to download and print at home, you're never going to police that that's mm. a completely different thing um and it's i don't know I, i'm not going to make a call as to whether it's okay with out of production miniatures or not but you know as a as a small miniature producer myself you wonder how long is it before somebody scans one of my figures and puts it up there for free for everyone to download mm. yeah <laughs> yeah that's a good or, point because yeah you're, you're coming from the perspective of being an actual uh, small business owner, you have your own yeah. miniature line and, and a, a game, game systems to support those. Yes, yeah. so that's 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 a really good perspective because I, admittedly, I've been looking at 3D printing options for just getting things like arms and backpacks and stuff yeah, for, for plastic models that yeah. are very, very difficult to find. Um, uh, yeah, but for are. those kind of things and people just helping me out and say, yeah, mate, I, I can print that out for you. You know, send me five bucks and you know, I'll send it to you kind of thing. Um, I I think it's a different thing if somebody's sculpting, you know, not not an ab absolute reproduction, but something very similar and compatible. Because there's there's a whole market in compatible bits for Games Workshop figures that they haven't been able to shut down. So that's been proved to be, you know, within the bounds of legality, and that's gonna that's gonna happen. But that's somebody sculpting it and then donating or selling their the files of their sculpts which is is fine it's it's when somebody scans something that they haven't made from scratch and puts mm. that up then that becomes a bit more of a uh, of a problem i mean I, i'm hoping that uh a i'm i'm small enough that probably nobody is really gonna <laughs> want to reproduce uh my figures that way um my prices, I don't think, are extortionate. So hopefully, people will just buy them. It will be much less effort than um, than printing them, and probably cheaper than printing them as well. Um, mm -hmm. But also that people will just be, you know, fairly decent about it and say, "Okay, there's a these these are in production. Here's a small guy who's just trying to get some figures up. Let's just support that if they're figures that I want." Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely, it, mate. Yeah. This this remains to be remains to be seen what impact it, it's going to have. But also, I, I think I'm aiming at a market of people who like their figures in lead. So 
Mm. You're not going to be 3D printing lead anytime soon. So that's no. that's a bonus. Um, yeah, so for things like like I was saying, like for the arms and that kind of stuff that's that's sort of lost, or you you you, you tend to buy stuff from the secondary market that have no arms or backpacks or anything like that anyway, weapons yeah. and that kind of stuff. So uh, for that, as a resource uh, for a for a scan file, I think that's really invaluable. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm totally totally against people um, scanning like in production miniatures and then flog them off at a profit. I mean that's that's, that's disgusting. But yeah, if they're if they're um, if they're sort of something that's very very rare to find. Um, or as you say, someone's built them from scratch. There was some guy who did like um, a chaos dwarf army that was like really in the in the same same sort of style as the fourth edition ones, which look absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah, that that's brilliant. I, I love how you know some fan has got the initiative to put that together and has, has the skill to make all those wonderful models. And yeah, I think that should be definitely um, encouraged. So absolutely. And I don't, I don't think it's the case that you can't have an old school aesthetic with the new technology. I've seen plenty of people produce some very nice old school looking 3D sculpted figures. There's nothing inherent in the, in the, um, the technique of sculpting that means that something that you produce digitally has to look sort of flat and super smooth and lacking in texture you can do all of those all of those things digitally it's just that a lot of companies that are um currently in the market for three uh, for digital sculpting are going for that very smooth clean look as a as a particular aesthetic choice mm. um but yeah i've seen some people do some wonderful old school sculpts um digitally yeah. and there are some people from yeah, who are who are genuine old school sculptors going into the into the digital realm? And Kev White from um, Hasslefree mm. is is just starting a uh, Patreon next year for oh. um, some of the stuff that he's doing digitally. He's he's started sculpting digitally and still still producing the wonderful things that he produces um, traditionally and and analog techniques, but. Um, yeah, his his digital stuff is looking phenomenal. Mm. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, because I do like Kev stuff. Unfortunately, I don't actually have any of his models, but I, I've always been a great admirer of the stuff he's done. I think he did uh, an Imperial Dwarf about a year or two ago. I think he did one of them, and I don't know if that was actually for sale or not, or whether he's just doing it right. out of fun. I, think, I but, think a lot of the things that he he's he sort of sculpts and somebody else looks after the business and i think he's ah, right okay. he's much more of a prolific uh sculptor than the business is able to release all of the things so i think lots of things that he churns out and churns out and churns out just take quite a long time to get into into production yeah. um but i i don't have very much from hassle free itself i've got pretty much everything that he did for the old keltos range that brigade models are stocking because mm. that's that's one of my personal favorite um kind of celtic slanya themed um miniatures go go for it. Settle, sit very well with me that's that's kind of my thing so yeah um, yeah 
but it seems to suit your your uh, style of game the oak bound um the miniature range and and the games yeah. you produce have well, that we, very we sort produce of the things that we like right so yeah um, yeah so I, I'm, I'm big into sort of not uh, i kind of describe it quite often as celtic but a lot of it isn't isn't celtic it's sort of um british there's a mix of uh of kind of cornish and um uh anglo-saxon mythology and things in there as well um but that that kind of folklore um I, I guess much much less kind of high fantasy more kind of mythic uh qualities to it is is what i'm big into um mm. Well, maybe maybe this this is a good good opportunity to just sort of dive into the games that you do produce and uh, give a bit of a background to what they're all about and and what people would expect if they were to purchase one of your rule books and what kind of games they would be, mate. So the big the big game that um, we produce is a game called The Woods, um, which is a dark age folklore fantasy setting. Um, and it's a rule set that plays in three modes. So you can play it as a um, as a role playing game. You can play it as a skirmish game, and you can play it as a, a battle game with big units. Um, and the the premise is that it's approximately Britain, but a, a an alternative form of Britain um, in a setting in which the uh the fey empire has just collapsed the fey empire which has um settled in in the mortal realm which is the uh the land uh the land of talavlar which is where the game is set um and the fey have have come in and colonized and brought servants from lots of other realms with them um and they discovered the uh, the Tuatha, who are the kind of human characters. And the Tuatha are um, very similar in their uh, in their kind of outlook to the Fae. And so the Fae, who are a, a sterile race, decide to adopt the Tuatha as their sort of surrogate children and nurture them and uh, bring them up into civilization. Um, but the Fae are not particularly uh, nice uh, creatures. They're very vain, they're very arrogant, they're very conniving, um, and they're uh, quite sadistic in, in many ways. Um, but they're also a bit squeamish. So although they, they like to see um, pain inflicted on, on other creatures, they don't like to do it themselves. They don't like to get their hands dirty. So they, um, so they have servants to do it for them. Uh, and they discover that the uh, the Tuatha, the humans, don't have any such uh, qualms about um, committing uh, acts of violence themselves. They're quite happy to do it. So the Fae uh, get a bit worried about this and decide that um, they may have made a mistake by um, revealing lots of secrets to the Tuatha. And so they withdraw pretty much overnight. They withdraw from the mortal realm and leave uh, the Tuatha who suddenly don't have any uh, mentors around them uh, and all of these uh, folk from different realms who the Fae have brought in as their, their servants and their slaves and their playthings um, 
and they've all got to try and work out how they're gonna how they're gonna live in this world together without the the kind of unifying feature holding them together. So there are some uh, some folk who uh, hold the Tuatha responsible for their imprisonment uh, under the Fae. There are some who see them as as victims of the Fae. Um, and the the game setting is this kind of fallout from the the departure of the Fae Empire. People trying to um, make their own their own space in the world. Um, and it plays. Uh, it's kind of base setting is the skirmish setting. So you you create a warband from either one of the creature types, or you can have what's called a, a CD or an unCD warband, where you're picking um, CD being uh, a kind of stance towards the face. So the unCD creatures are the creatures who are a bit vindictive towards them, um, and the CD creatures are the creatures that have been largely on their side. Um, so you can mix and match creature types on that basis and it's a very uh, objective based game so at the start of each game each side will pick what they're going to try and achieve uh, during the course of the game and it's perfectly possible for both sides to achieve their objectives and it's perfectly possible for both sides um, to fail but the the kind of crucial difference I think between this and a lot of other games is that it's an entirely diceless system um, mm. So everything is rooted in uh, actions and the uh, capabilities of models. So you have a, a, a stat line um, which generates a, cent a set of sort of secondary stats that are, are used in gameplay to determine whether your shots are successful, whether your fighting attempts are successful, but also things like um, coercing uh, other people's characters. So you can, you can force people's models to do the things that you want them to do. Um, things like intimidating other models' characters, uh, sorry, other uh, the players' characters, um, interacting with with scenery. Uh, th there's a lot more kind of, uh, I guess, role play elements to it. It's it, it's a bit more flexible than um, than a straight sort of you know, shoot your enemy or fight your enemy, um, and the objectives are very much based on. Uh, interactions with with the environment of the game uh, and there's a there's a campaign system that that ties into it so your your warbands grow and develop over time and you can expand them and they can sustain injuries and they can gain territories and um renown and things um yeah so that's 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 the basic system um and the, there are sort of numerous numerous races in the world. So we've got, um, the, in addition to the, the Tuatha, who are just the humans, who we actually, we don't produce any uh, figures for the Tuatha because there are so many companies that do, you know, dark age humans of various types. We thought that's, we'll just let them, we'll let them take care of that side of things. But we've got, um, uh, there are pixies who are kind of short hedgehog looking creatures. We've got um, the Miri, who are uh, kind of one-eyed marsh-dwelling monsters. Um, there are some Fae still around. Um, there are uh, the gnomes in the mountain and the goblins in the mountains. Um, there are the Norlocks, who are a kind of uh, ratman culture who live under the world in, um, uh, in big 
caverns and there are kind of mercantile people. They sell all these barges through subterranean um, caverns to, to trade with other people. Um, who else have we got? Oh, there's this, the Spriggans who are kind of uh, ogreish um, race, but they are um, sort of constrained by only being out during the dark because uh, during daylight they're tiny little diminutive creatures. Um, so there's, there's that sort of, if you're playing with them, um, the, the kind of environmental elements as to, to what the weather's doing and you know when it's going to get dark are quite important. Um, uh, there's the Booker who are kind of fishman people who are the, the enemies of the, the Norlocks. And there again, they're constrained time-wise because they can only be out on water for so long. So they've got to achieve their objective, you know, get in there, get out, do what you need to do. Um, yeah, so it's quite a it's quite a varied and diverse diverse setting, uh, but it's all all rooted in um, sort of folklore of the British Isles. There's a bit a bit of Scandinavian stuff in there. There's a bit of Germanic stuff in there, but it's mostly mostly British Isles mythology based. Mm. All right, sounds wonderful. So people can go to the to a website to to look at these yeah. races in more detail. Yeah, absolutely. It's all all, on, all the miniatures are up on the website. Um, so that's oakbound.co.uk. Um, you can check out the Facebook groups. Um, there's a, a Woods uh, Worldwide Players Circle Facebook group, uh, which is fairly active. Um, and of course, there's an Oakbound Facebook group. Um, I do a YouTube channel, uh, I do videos weekly. And a lot of those videos I'm doing sort of more hobby related things so i've done some some terrain making videos and some painting videos and um at the moment we're running a series which is probably going to go on for several years as long as i carry on doing the channel <laughs> looking at um comparing white dwarves from a decade apart so there's, there's a lot of just general hobby stuff on there but i have also done you know, videos on how to play the game videos on uh, advice for building certain war bands and looking at where they come from, what the folklore is surrounding them, uh, the decisions that were made for the, the design and sculpting um, of them. So it's quite a mix, quite an eclectic mix based on what's going on and what I am in the mood to talk about every week. Yeah. No, I've very much enjoyed the White Dwarf reflections on the, like the decade, you know, before and, um, and, and after. So yeah, I really enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, that's a new one. That's, I'm only two two episodes into that one, but I think I, I figured I've got enough white dwarfs to do a decade apart for about seven years. So we'll see how long that series lasts, whether I do end up doing a monthly one for seven years or um, things change. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining things will change before I get to that point, but who knows? <laughs> Wonderful, man. And, and, um, and how, how did it how did this all sort of begin? Like you you becoming a, a you know a small business operator and, and developing your own game and that kind of thing. How did that all start? So I the the miniature side of it started because um, I wanted to make a uh, familiar army for third edition. I was looking for what's what's the most obscure Warhammer army that I can possibly pick out, uh, and that that was it. That was my choice, but there weren't many models ever available for that. Um, 
So I started sculpting some of my own and put some pictures on the old hammer forum. And a few people said, oh, I'd, I'd quite like some of those. Can you get them cast up? Um, so I looked into it and discovered that it was not anything like as complicated or as expensive as I thought that it might possibly be. So, uh, so I did that. Um, and then that was followed by a few more. And it just kind of got into this system where I was sculpting things that I wanted. But if I could get enough people interested to take copies of them, then the, I could get them cast rather than just painting my sculpts and, um, uh, and it would end up being fairly cash neutral. So I started off running Oakband very much as a, a way of just funding the hobby things that I wanted to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, uh, I was playing some Necromunda uh, with some friends, was big into Necromunda. And it was, I, I was kind of getting a bit frustrated that the the game system wasn't allowing me to be as I guess role play as interactive with the environment as I wanted to be it was all sort of moving and shooting which was all very well but it got a little bit tiring after a while I wanted to be able to do some more interesting scenarios so I started writing a rule set for that um, which became the rule set for um, factious waste which is also uh, one of our Oakbound's rule sets. It's the, the sort of post-apocalyptic version. Um, and then I, I, so I was produced, I had this rule set for a, a, like a sci-fi post-apocalyptic game. And I had figures for a, a kind of Celtic folklore um, setting. And I was taking these round conventions and people say, were saying, so what, what game can I play these miniatures with? And I said, well, you can play them with whatever whatever miniatures game you want. Um, but people seem to be a bit confused that I was selling miniatures without a game behind it. So I thought I should really uh, I should really put a game to it. And so what I ended up doing was um, having quite a lot of conversations and test games with friends who are big into their um, sort of medieval and, and dark age reenactment and um, history. And we took the, uh, the post-apocalyptic rule set and basically shook it up and made it work as a, um, as a dark age, um, a, a, in a dark age setting. And that became the woods. And that's now the kind of prime focus that's in its uh, second edition um, after having quite a few revisions a couple of years ago. Um, and that, that seems to be where, where people like to be. Um, and it's certainly that's, that's my sort of my major interest, although I do like to play the, uh, the post-apocalyptic version. Um, and actually that's getting not a, not a straight new edition, but that's getting a, a rule book revision, um, probably early next year and working on that at the moment. Um, so yeah, it really came from what what people were kind of asking, asking to have done. Um, and at the time, there wasn't a huge amount of um, kind of low fantasy, semi-historical, um, dark age things around that that incorporated that kind of folkloric aspect. There were um, things like um, Keltos and Erin that were based in um celtic mythology but they were 
very much kind of standard fantasy war games just put into that setting whereas i i wanted to do something that was more folkloric rather than battle focused necessarily mm. um, and in fact the the woods as a as a setting started out as a a fairly long-winded um board game well actually yes it started out as a fairly long-winded board game that that i was was making so all of the all of the background was written for that um but then i was talking to um a chap at a convention um probably about nine or ten years ago now who um was doing uh kind of indie role play games um and he was writing a rule set for a uh for a celtic fantasy role playing game uh, and asked if i'd write the background for it so that was that was then developed from this uh the board game that i've been developing into the background setting for this role playing game which unfortunately never materialized so it then got co-opted into the background for uh for the woods so it's it's been a bit of a kind of um saga getting getting it into mm -hmm. getting it into production but it i think it hangs together for something that has has its origins in um quite a lot of piecemeal um areas it's it feels very cohesive altogether it feels like it fits together which is is nice mm. wonderful and okay well let, let's let's bring the conversation back to the miniatures in your own collection what what would be the um, I don't know the, the centerpiece of your collection so far that you have, you're the most proudest uh, collection that you've painted or the you know the, the miniature that you love the best or the most? Well, I, I should have, say. Uh, I have a full set of. I have a full set of the advanced hero quest heroes. Oh yes. I see those um, the metal prototypes. The, the metal prototypes. Yes. Which is is something that I'm quite quite. How, how did you get hold of those, Jeff? Well <laughs> who did uh, you have to pay? <laughs> well, this is this is interesting because um the the first one that I got was the dwarf. Um and that was actually a gift from uh, Marcus Ansel, Brian's oh, son, yeah. um, at Boyle one year. So nice. that didn't cost me anything. And then um, I did some sculpting for uh, another guy in the Old Hammer community who has some connections and a, a business in finding rare figures. Um, and so we we did a bit of an exchange and the other four, uh, the, the other three heroes and the Man at Arms uh came my way as a result of that mm. um so the only one that i have actually paid any money for is the skaven um oh, right. that, I, <laughs> that i felt like it was worth paying um a bit of extra uh for him just to complete the collection i actually haven't got around to painting him yet so he he's still to wow. do but that's that's a uh, a part of my collection that i'm quite pleased with um and they're, they're beautifully painted too mate i must say not that you can see them from here, but they're on they're on the blog. 
<laughs> yeah, I was, I was seen on Twitter. You had like a you had like a mock up of an heavy metal page, and you had those featured in there. Yeah, yeah very very yeah. nice. The, yeah. One of the guys on the old Hammer community did a a template for like creating a white dwarf heavy metal page. So they they look good in that context. Yes, yeah, I, so. yeah, I was um I had them up against the uh the Mike McVeigh painted figures in the cabinet at Foundry. Yeah. And my the wizard's pretty close. I'm gonna I'm not gonna claim to be at that McVeigh level because obviously I'm not, but color-wise, the wizard's pretty close. The others, the colors I took from the magazine, and they're not quite as bright as the ones in the cabinet actually are, which is interesting. I think that's that's something that going up to Foundry has shown me quite a bit that the the figures that were in the magazines were not quite as desaturated as I thought they were. They're actually much brighter, but because of the photography from the era, mm. um, they always they seemed a bit more muted in the in the catalogs. That's been interesting. So I think those are those are probably some of my favourite things. I've also got a uh, a cabinet of um, combat cards miniatures i don't know if you've seen those but one of my big long-standing projects was to collect and paint all of the goblinoids combat cards set um i think it took me about three years to collect all of the figures and then another three years to get around to starting painted on them because i was quite intimidated and there are quite a few of them that are conversions or or basically whole kev adams sculpts um, mm. over the top of existing miniatures so yeah it took me so all in all it was probably about a seven or eight year project from starting yeah. collecting them to getting them to getting them all done but they are all done now and they've they've been out to play several times so i'm also quite quite pleased with those um Wonderful. yeah yeah i've I also got a great spine dragon that i need to get finished painting oh, that's yeah on the, uh, I, I started it again. I started it about four years ago, and I need to get back to painting it. In in the meantime, one of its wings has got a bit fatigued and snapped, so I need to pin it and then putty it and put it back together. But that's a, that's a miniature that I I did not ever expect to own um, because I, despite how popular they were, they still seem to be very few of them around and. Um, the ones that are command quite high prices so actually the the dragon that's in the oak bound range was very much sculpted as my uh my wanting to have a great spine dragon and not not getting a great spine dragon so doing my own great spine dragon uh and about yeah. i know a month after the castings of that coming back um i was uh, was contacted by someone who was selling a, a spine dragon at a very good price so um so i did in fact pick up a great spine dragon to go with it so, yeah nice man that's wonderful yeah <laughs> um yeah, yeah. yeah sorry i was going to say if people want to see a lot of this stuff they can see your the youtube channel because I, i'm pretty sure i saw that combat card you know you get you get your miniatures really nicely displayed you know people who can't see the video but they got really nicely displayed in these little uh, like printer draw cabinets on your wall, which are really mm -hmm. nice. I like that. Yeah. I'd like to do the same, actually. I think it's a wonderful idea. Um, yeah, but and... the combat cards ones are in a uh, like a frame that I that I made mm. myself for them. But yeah, I've got a, like a big dresser unit on one wall that's that's quite full of. I, I always worry that I'm going to um, hear this massive crash above my head one night and everything <laughs> come off the wall. So yeah. 
there's so many screws in this. I was just just terrified it was all going to end up on the floor. So it's screwed and wall plugged in every available <laughs> every available spot. I hope we never move house because it's going to be an absolute nightmare getting this lot off the wall. I can imagine, mate. Yeah, don't don't move to Japan because it's probably the worst country for doing anything like that. In fact, now that I think about it, I will definitely not be doing that. Uh, my cabinet's well and truly rooted to the ground here. It's so bloody heavy, mate. It's it will take it'll take a tsunami to move this thing off the floor. But uh, but my miniatures have a bit of a shake around, have a bit of a jiggle and a bit of a boogie in the in the miniature cabinet when uh, when an earthquake hits. The earthquakey. Yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. Does that, right. does that happen very often? Or you... it, it happens. Yeah, it, happen, it happens. Well, it can happen very irregularly. But, you know, um, I, think, I think Japan has about 300 earthquakes a year, okay. ranging from, you know, um, ones that you can't even feel and depending where, where, the, you know, where they originate from. But, um, and we've had, I think, maybe two sort of, you know, fairly big shocks this week. Wow! So I've, I've had I've had ones where, uh, famously, I, I did it like an epic Space Marine uh, live stream during COVID on the on the Facebook group. I was I was streaming through there and I was playing a guy in the UK, and um, as it was happening, this massive earthquake and it, it was the biggest one I've ever felt, uh, having lived here uh, in almost ten years, and and stuff was just falling off off the shelves, like inside my walk-in wardrobe. I've got a whole stack of um, board games up there. Well, the, the boxes are falling down. I was holding to, I was holding on to the stuff here and because everything was shaking so violently that um, yeah, stuff was just flying all over, all over the place. But mm -hmm. yeah, hopefully we won't have any <laughs> big earthquakes that um, destroy my miniature collection. That'd be very sad, but um, uh, Gork and Morkel have to save me then, I suppose, if that happens. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah. It must. It must be quite. I don't know. Do you do you kind of get used to it? Is it quite a weird thing that I don't know? Having the world shake around you on a on a fairly not it was not scary, regular basis. That yeah. that one we we had then. While I was talking about the one I was just talking about before. That really scared me. I thought I was going to fall through the uh, the floorboards because I'm on the second floor. I thought the second floor was going to collapse, but obviously these houses are built for this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's oh, Japan's wow. is built for it. So um, yeah, now I've, I've gotten used to it. I think initially it was a bit of a bit of a bit of a worry, and uh, now you get used to it and you don't even think about it. And when when one comes, you think, oh okay, there's a, there's a and sometimes it happens when you're sleeping too, and that that's the that's the ones that are really weird because you'll wake you up for like a couple of seconds, then you go for, you fall back to sleep. So, in the case of my wife, she doesn't even wake up. So she's lucky. You don't get shaken out of bed by it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, Japan's not ideally suited for those kind of wall cabinets. As nice wall cabinets you got there. No, sure. Right, cool. Yeah, um, I'm a bit. I'm a bit concerned about what's going to happen when I run out of room on these things because I'm, I'm almost at limit I think in here with what I can fit in I might have to get rid of some things yeah you, you got a lot of stuff there because um I know that uh I think when I, I first discovered your channel through 
Dave Gilson's birthday bash at the foundry oh, yeah. when when that happened, and then you had like a video up or something about it. Yeah, and uh, I saw your collection of I think it was Empire models that you had there. Um, was it the I had... was it Orkin Goblins? I can't remember now. I I took all well. It's that was an interesting one because I wasn't sure what I was playing up until about two weeks before uh, the game. So I was either I was either joining the orc side or I was joining the empire side. So I had like three thousand points of orcs and three thousand points of empire set aside, and I just grabbed whichever one that I was asked to was asked to bring. Um, yeah, but yeah. my my empire army mostly consists of um, plastic um, hero quest and advanced hero quest henchmen. Um, I don't have a lot of actual empire um, models in there um so yeah it's it's a bit thrown together but my the orcs and goblins i didn't really have any orcs and goblins prior to that game coming up so it was a bit of an excuse to uh to invest in in some and i didn't want to go you know full-on um kev adams orky with it so i i went for more um uh, a lot of them are the former ralpatha um figures but i've mostly used those as goblins and then i've got some of the um fantasy warlord you know the um the gary chalk game fantasy warlord um though they had some some western orcs that i've managed to get hold of quite a bunch of um i think shq used to have them but they've they've gone to they may have gone to Scotty Grendel now. I can't can't quite remember where they went to, but I managed to pick up a load of those before they disappeared. Mm. So that that sort of formed the basis, plus you know trolls and pump wagons, because that's that just says orcs to me. Everything else is a backup, but give me give me eight trolls and four pump wagons on the table, and I'm a happy man. <laughs> You're actually going to do some damage then, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, with at least one of them, yeah. Yeah. I think um, I, I was up against uh, um, when we lined up on the table. I was up against a halfling um, contingent, um, and they went straight for the hot pot. That was a definite <laughs> troll feasting was happening there. Yeah, yeah, it looked like an amazing game. It was good, and it was um, it was really nice to have to have been able to do that because then bring it. That didn't happen that year, so it was. Mm a thing to do before before covid like a last get together before covid really kicked in yeah um yeah very pleased pleased we went up for that however i have to say that um when you've got that many people playing a game uh the magic phase of a fourth edition battle just gets painful really really painful <laughs> So I reckon either if you if you're doing that in future, you've either got to say one person on each side can can bring magic users, um, or you absolutely limit the time of the magic phase. You're right, magic phases go. You've got five minutes. Anything you haven't done in five <laughs> minutes, you can't do. Um, yeah. I think it took us how long were we playing? About six hours on the Saturday and three or four on the Sunday, and I think we got to turn four. Wow, <laughs> yeah. okay. It was, 
it was a long game, but it was fun. Yeah, it looked like a lot of fun. I, I actually got, I, I feel tired by looking at it. I don't know why, but it, it feels like it's, <laughs> it feels like hard work. Yeah. It, but, uh, yeah. Well, I, I basically took an army that could march forwards and hit things because I really didn't want to get bogged down in the kind of complexity of, of things. So I, I was able to sort of go, right, I've done my movement. I'm just going to set back and watch what other people are up to. And, and watching it was uh, was as much fun as uh, as being <laughs> directly involved in it. That, yeah. That's basically what I did with the um, uh, the bootleg boil earlier this year as well. We had a big wood elves versus general evil army um, game. Uh, and again, I had I gave my archers to somebody else and I basically had a bunch of war dancers um, and some treemen and they stomped towards things in an attempt to fight them. Mm. But no magic, no flying creatures, no no any of the other things that make a, a fourth edition game really, really interesting just because I, I think it's more fun to step back from the table and watch what other people are playing. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I, I'm quite I enjoy going to events like Bring Out Your Lead and not having anything scheduled in to actually be playing. because mm -hmm. um, just you miss so much by not wandering around and seeing what other people are up to. Mm. But of course, if everyone did that, then the big games wouldn't happen. So somebody's got to be involved in the big games. There was a really cool game this year with um uh Dark Future. They built this incredible um, board that had kind of canyons and tunnels and overpasses and none of the none of the rolling road thing. The whole track was laid out for them to just play this sort of endless looping game of Dark Future on. It looked really, really cool. Unfortunately, it was shoved away in one of the back rooms. So I'm not sure how many people sort of got to witness the full majesty of it. I hope they bring it back next year and put it in the tent because then everyone will be able to see how amazing it is. Yeah. I've never played Dark Future myself, but I'd, I'd like to just give it a go one day. Maybe bring out your lead would probably be the best opportunity for that, I suppose. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. I like a game of, like a game of Dark Future. It's quite different. It, Yeah, it feels like quite a different game from I'm generally a, a, um, a fantasy gamer so it's nice to get something something different on the go so when you do have a chance to have a game what what games do you generally play with your friends we tend to do um we tend to do something warhammer first to third if we're doing a miniatures game um we have played some rogue trooper uh, uh not rogue trooper rogue trader rogue trader in the past um, but it tends to be a, a fantasy first to third, and it tends to be a um, a, a kind of character-driven, you've got a character there trying to raise an army and do various things around the table, very objective-led um, game, very narrative-driven game, um, not worrying too much about what exactly the rules are. Um, but um, we don't play... We don't play big miniatures games all that often. It's maybe four or five times a year that we'll we'll be able to get together for a, a tabletop game. Um, most of the time, we're playing board games or card games and um, mm. pieces like that. Which 
is good. I think we've got uh, we're going to get the the re-released Blockmania out next week. I think. Oh yeah. Yeah, um, the Judge Dread. Yep. X Citadel game. Yep. I haven't played that for a while, so it's time to. to get nice that one. one out again. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's just something as take taking your mind off every day. <laughs> yeah. Everyday life for a bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I have to say that I'm I'm more of a um collector and painter than I am a, a gamer. I'm quite happy to sit at home and paint figures and not worry too much about whether they get use on the table or not. But yeah. But it's nice for every now and again when they do get get out on the table. Yeah. That's, that's fun. We had quite a good game uh, day of gaming with some different friends a couple of weeks ago. We played a um a Lord of the Rings skirmish game campaign over the course of a day that was quite fun mm. that's probably actually one of my favorite rule sets the um uh when was it 2001 was it that that fellowship came out something like that um bet that yeah i think it was yeah yeah well it came out whenever the films did that was a long time ago so whenever that was but yeah i think it's quite um it's quite simple, but it's also um, uh, it, it lets you it lets you do quite a lot flexibly with with scenarios. I'm a big big fan of scenario driven games, and that that whole set came out with books and books and magazine articles full of different scenarios. So you always get a, a slightly different experience, and you can pick something that's that's tailored to your warband, which is it is a nice experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Jeff, what what's the what's the one miniature? Or, uh, yeah, one miniature in your collection which um, you hold um, most dear. Which is the, which is the which is your most favorite model? Is it one of the one of the the prototypes of the HeroQuest miniatures or something else? I don't know. Um, <laughs> just the one. Just the one. Or a range, or a range <laughs> of models that you really love. That you could never do without. You could never sell or we could never give away. Um I really don't know. Uh oh, I I possibly do. Possibly no. <laughs> Going hunting now. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't actually painted them yet, which is shocking. I really uh -huh. but probably. The ones that I'm most attached to, let's see if I can get these anywhere like near you, are these, they're a bit shiny, but these are the Grenadier Dark Crystal. Oh, wow. They did. Um, so they're, they're quite a lot bigger, but these are, um, these are fairly, fairly scarce. Um, now, they're also absolutely enormous chunks of, of yeah. lead, but the, um, the Dark Crystal is probably my favorite film well actually in a very in a very specific period of time because when i first saw it it absolutely terrified me but then i kind of came back <laughs> 10 years later and um, it's been absolutely firm favorite ever since so that's there's very sort of personal attachment um to that mm -hmm. with those so yeah, i think I'd, I'd go with those as the, the things that i'm most attached to 
Wow, that's amazing. I, I never knew part of the reason why they haven't been painted because I just I, I'm sort of still not sure that I could do them justice. So wow. they're still here waiting for it. I'm sure you can, Jeff. No problem at all, mate. I, you know, I, I love the um, the stuff you've done for the the old hammer projects you've been working on, especially the Hero Quest, Advanced Hero Quest stuff. I've really enjoyed that a lot. And in fact, you fooled me because that photo you, you took of the foundry, I thought they were Mike's models that you had in, in your hand uh, right. on the, on the yeah, display the board. And then I looked at the back and I thought, oh no, that's I can see now that they're, the original ones are in the cabinet and yours one there. So yeah, yeah, it, didn't, it, didn't helped, it helped that I couldn't get the um, the camera focused to get both of them in focus at a time. So uh, <laughs> the eye when the, the good ones were out of focus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, good camera skills, it mate. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, and any other sort of old hammer projects you have planned for the future at all? Well, we have just started uh, the three thirty three point army challenge. Um, so uh, this is something that I think Dave Gilson is kind of pioneering um, where we're doing 333 points a month to raise a 3000 point army to take to boil yeah. next year. Yeah. Um, I don't have an awful lot of time at the moment for hobby things. So I, and also I've got a big selection of vintage chaos warriors on my shelves that have not been painted. So I decided to go for a realm of chaos uh, army that I could just roll up from the books and hopefully 333 points of chaos should be no more than half a dozen figures um, and uh, there'll be figures that I've already got on the shelf um, but I kind of failed with the first month because uh, of the um, figures that I rolled up I then went and bought uh, new figures for all of those things because they didn't have exactly the right thing to fit exactly the right theme that I wanted um, yeah. And it actually ended up being uh, about 30 figures. So I'm, I'm lagging a little bit behind from the first um, from the first month, but hopefully I'll have more expensive troops and fewer ones of them for, for next month to make up for it. Um, but I'm doing a, um, a sort of covert Tilian Slaneshi cult. Um, so this, this guy that I'm painting up at the moment is, uh, is my leader. Um, they're they're going to be based on uh, the Borgias and on the Italian wars of the um, of the 16th century. So there are lots of um, sort of Swiss Guard Landschnecti looking um, troops, and I've I've got hold of these um, plastic uh, beast men. You know the Monopose Fourth Edition oh, yeah. plastic men, and I've um, puttied you know sort of uh, ripped sleeves and things on them to do them up as a as a swiss guard um cohort for my uh for my debauched pope and his and his acolytes <laughs> i did i did see the video on that that was one of the other recent videos you had up about that beastman um well horde of beastmen that you got at the bring at your leg yeah, yeah, yeah. So i bring and bring I let swap it, let it be known that i wanted a few beastmen and yeah. lots of <laughs> they'll oblige you and then give you lots of beastmen yeah yeah lots and lots of beastmen I, I i yeah i've done i've done 10 beastmen i think that was that was enough for the one month um, <laughs> one of them on them at a time yeah wonderful yeah, yeah that's a great I'm, yeah. so I, i'm hoping possibly next week i mean next next weekend is salute so most of this week is going to be 
final preparations for for going up to salute but i'm hoping at some point to squeeze in rolling my second month's worth of uh, of troops from slave to dark so that'll be an interesting thing so i might do right. that live on the channel <laughs> yeah please do yeah I've, I've... i can't and i can't fudge the rolls well i will fudge the yeah. rolls but I'll be on <laughs> <when> I'm fudging <laughs> the rolls <laughs> yeah i'm sure we'll appreciate it because yeah i've never seen that done before I, I i've had i've had the books in my hands and then i think i sold them without even you know having given a yeah. proper look so i'd love to see how that works because i think there's a I, yeah. I'd love to know how it works as well. I like every time yeah, I do it, I've, I've been doing it wrong because I, right. I yeah. So actually, um, uh, Orlig's Realms of Chaos blog has a very good sort of overview of to, to how to roll a Chaos Warband that he did for a, a, um, a an old Hammer uh, Warbands challenge a while back. So that's that's worth mm -hmm. taking a look at. But that's not exactly as it is written in the book um he's sort of simplified it to give people a bit more of a balanced force um yeah i just i don't know when you stop rolling for tributes i think you can basically roll for tributes until you end up with a chaos spawn and then start again seems to, seems to be the way of it okay but, yeah well, i'll look forward to that video then that'd be, that'd be good <laughs> <laughs> don't don't turn into a chaos spawn whatever you do uh, i'll right. try not well not, not just <laughs> Well, Depp has been a real pleasure to talk to you, mate. We've, we've been yeah, sort of sitting here and doing some hobby and having a good chat. So uh, it's been well worth, um, yeah. Um, I hope, hopefully, it's been well worth your time coming and talking to me and, and talking to the listeners. And I hope um, some people come and check out your YouTube channel. You're doing some great content there, and check out your website and and have a look at the games you're uh, producing. And hopefully, maybe go and see you at Salute if you're if they're in the UK and Europe, and yeah, come and come say hello. Yeah, good. Good to see some people face to face. It's been lots of talking to a camera and then responding to comments and not actually talking to people. So it's good. It's good to actually have a chat. Wonderful, mate. OK, well, yeah, stay safe there and enjoy your, your hobby projects. And I'd love to see those dark crystal models painted at some point. Yeah, at some point. It'll happen sometime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. OK, mate. Until Cheers. next time, take care. You too. OK, mate. Thank you. Bye bye.